Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome to the Mega Brands Podcast. This is episode number nine. I am super excited about today's conversation with a retail expert and brand strategist. Doug Stevens is the smartest guy in the room where retail is concerned. He is the retail prophet, author of an amazing new book that I just finished called Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. He's also written two other great retail books, The Retail Revival and Reengineering Retail. This podcast was recorded after the market closed on Friday, May 14th. I think you are really going to enjoy our conversation about the current state of retail, which brands seem to be resonating and uh, kind of get it where the future of retail and consumer experiences are concerned. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Doug Stevens and his book, Resurrecting Retail. Hey, Doug, how you doing? I'm doing well, Eric, how are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, San Diego is a little warm and, uh, and sunny today, and you're, uh, although is spring coming for you or spring already arrived? Oh, spring has sprung, my friend. And we are, we are chomping at the bit here in Toronto to get out and enjoy it. And will they let you is the issue, I guess. <laughs> We are still in, in a uh, state of lockdown and uh, we're making progress, uh, but unfortunately we lost some ground in terms of vaccine distribution and vaccinations. But hey, we're, uh, you know, we're tough here in the North. We can handle it. Absolutely. Well, I'm guessing then your Amazon boxes are showing up at your doorstep almost daily then. Indeed. Yeah, I have to admit I'm a bit of a super user. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, every day. And sometimes I even, I give my wife grief, you know, she, I'll, I'll see this teeny tiny box on the step and I'm like, you're taxing the system. We're, you know, you, you just ordered a box of gum online. <laughs> like could, we couldn't have gotten that, you know, in person, we're, we're taxing this, this, this logistics system, but they seem yeah. to be doing okay at Amazon. 
I think they're doing all right. Yeah, I think they're having a, a fairly a fairly good year. Well, listen, I, I'm super excited for the conversation. I really, really enjoyed your book. Obviously, I'm the you know I'm the retail guy from an investor perspective. So it's really fun to talk to somebody from your side of the ledger. You deal with brand strategy and you work with a lot of these great companies trying to help them understand the market that they're in and identify the, the trends that they should be focused on and spend their R&D spend on. And uh, you know, in, in one particular part of the book, I, I would love to be the fly on the wall with you telling the people at Walmart what they should be doing. Cause I'm guessing there's some egos at some of these companies and they're like, wait, who's this outsider telling us what we should be doing? <laughs> you know, I have to admit, um, and, and I, I've done several sessions for Walmart and I have to admit that they were incredibly receptive. They were really open to outside opinion, to outside perspective. They were very, very willing, you know, to uh, address their own foibles and their own weaknesses. Um, they really are, a, a, you know, as, as you can imagine, they're a real performance-based organization and they're frankly interested in anything that can give them, you know, a little bit of an edge. So I found them to be quite receptive. I think at that time though, and that was going back now to about 2015 or 16, um, there was, I would say that there was a bit of a schism in the organization at that time. And this was sort of, you know, shared with me by people close to the, you know, close to the throne, so to speak, where you had kind of the old school that was still kind of hanging on to the idea that, hey, if we can just go back to what Sam was doing, you know, life will be good. And then there was this other contingent that clearly saw the writing on the wall and knew that, you know, the future was digital. And, and I think they knew, frankly, that they should have been Amazon. Uh, Walmart should have been Amazon. And I, I think they recognized that they missed that curve. So no, I, I found them to be remarkably receptive and open to uh, new ideas. Well, terrific. I, I, you know, I mean, you know, I was looking at your website, retailprofit.com and, you know, I mean, you have some amazing clients, Home Depot and Citi and BMW, Microsoft, Target, eBay, Ferrari, Google. I mean, those are some great brands, great conversations. We own some of those brands in the, in the brands fund. So, you know, this is very, from a selfish perspective, this is great for me because this, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, your book is not just about the retail industry for someone who's interested in the retail industry. I mean, I, I am, I'm a dedicated investor. So, I mean, you can extract lots of great nuggets of information if you're analyzing companies and you like to own some of these brands from a stock perspective. So I think your universe of reader here is really large potentially larger than, you know, some might think right on the, right on the surface. Is that, is that fair to say? I hope so. You know, I, I mean, uh, that's always the goal is to try to write something that will be as relevant as possible to the largest possible audience. Um, you know, what I, what I try to do very often in, in the books that I write is I, I try to start off with a macro view and some, in, and in some cases, a historical view of retail, but really sort of panning out, looking at some of the bigger issues. And then uh, I always try as much as possible to also be pragmatic and practical and bring it down to the level of the operator or the, you know, the practitioner on the front lines. So my hope is within that sort of spectrum of narrative that, uh, that there would be a wide audience that can look to the book for guidance. 
Right. So, you know, I guess a, a good place to start is, you know, you've written two other books. Um, you know, p the pandemic obviously was a horrible thing for all of us to go through. But in the retail industry, things changed dramatically almost overnight for certain companies. So, you know, as you thought about, you know, when did you start thinking about writing this book? And, you know, why did you have to, why did you have to, to write book number three, for, you know, as a series to the evolution of retail? Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is I was already in the process of writing book three when the pandemic hit. And it was a book, as you can imagine, that had nothing to do with uh, epidemiology or pandemics or, you know, economies in ruins. And so it was really a book that was, I, what, I, what has intrigued me for a long time is the, is the growing intersection between art and retail. And the idea that as we move more and more toward this experiential economy, that that really becomes a matter of uh, content and production uh, on, on the part of brands, staging experiences for consumers. So I was writing a book that really sought to kind of put that, that idea under the microscope and look at the commonalities between art and retail. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. And so like everyone else, uh, I, I think it was actually on March the 3rd, I, it was when the penny dropped for me. Uh, I was watching the news and, and there were two segments back to back. One, one had to do with uh, tremors in the stock market and the other had to do with kind of growing cases of COVID-19 in, uh, in Asia. And um, it was at that point, <clears throat> I, I clearly recall uh, you know, going to my wife and saying, um, I need to talk to the publisher. I need to talk to my publisher because I have a feeling that this is going to be a lost year. I have a feeling that this thing is going off the rails and this is going to be significant. And so with that, I, I actually, it was that night, I think at about one in the morning, I couldn't even sleep. I, uh, I sent an email to my publisher and I just said, I need to talk to you about a pivot. Uh, I think there's only going to be one story in the retail market for the foreseeable future, and that's going to be this pandemic, uh, which wasn't even at that point a pandemic. It was an epidemic that was becoming a pandemic. So fortunately, my publisher, uh, who's incredibly flexible and understanding, uh, said, yeah, no, we think you're right. So go for it. Do what you need to do. Take the time you need to take, but write this book. And so that was that. Love it. Uh, but I think so, there, I would say too, though, Eric, uh, that there was another thing too that that I think really once I started writing the book, I think what really powered it was the idea that there was a narrative developing in the marketplace that COVID nineteen was really just an accelerator, uh, you know, an accelerator of things to come, or or things that would have happened anyway were just being accelerated, and I felt that. Um, I, I felt that that was sort of a, a, an intellectually lazy position. I mean, it was obvious that, you know, sure. I mean, we can't shop in stores. So of course, everyone's running to online. And in that sense, yeah, okay. We've seen an acceleration of behavior, but it seemed to me too, that there, there were unique things happening that were really changing everything fundamentally. It wasn't just accelerating the future of retail. It was really altering it completely. And so I felt that there was a need to talk about those things, you know, and not simply uh, kind of this superficial storyline about an acceleration. 
Yeah, and I mean, listen, from a, from a stock picker's perspective, you know, a lot of these companies pulled forward five years or more of customer acquisition and revenue and it's going to be, you know, some of those are going to, you know, some of those people that got into that flywheel will stay there, be loyal and, and kind of elevate that brand and their revenue to another level. And then some will pretty, you know, pretty much rented those customers because of COVID and went back. And so it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, who, who, who keeps those clients and, and keeps their customer delight high and who really, who really falls back. And, and you know, the, the book, Resurrecting Retail, really talks about kind of both. I mean, I, you know, I, I found the book, you know, sometimes books can be, you know, rah-rah, but, but there's definitely parts of the book that really talk about, listen, some of retail has been dying for years. You know, I, you used an analogy about, about having, you know, a, a, pre a pre-existing condition that, that's been around for a long time. And so, yeah. You know, as you look at the retail landscape now, you know, let, I guess let's talk about Amazon. I mean, when, when someone talks about retail, they usually think about, about, about Amazon. I mean, how do you think a company like Amazon continues that growth that they, and, and that, that kind of benefited them from the, from the pandemic? Yeah. And boy, did they ever benefit. Um, so, and, and of course, Amazon figures uh, very prominently in the book. And as you, as you so accurately point out, it's impossible to have a conversation about retail today without talking about the elephant in the room, which is always Amazon, or if you're in Asia, maybe someone like Alibaba. But um, the pandemic, I think, has been a double-edged sword for, for Amazon. On the one hand, the, the benefits and, and how they have benefited is obvious. Uh, they, they've seen you know, revenue increases upwards of 40% in the last quarter. I think the top line was about 40% growth. Uh, their customer acquisition has been absolutely astonishing. Um, and, and, and so on. in that regard, of course, uh, they've seen an upside. But as anyone will attest to that's ever run a business that has been successful, your shareholders have new expectations all of a sudden. And now if you're a shareholder in Amazon, you're saying, okay, well, what are you going to do for an encore? Uh, you know, so I think that this is, is, you know, put some pressure on Amazon now to move into a new phase of its own evolution. And I think the leadership change is symbolic of that. I think even Bezos understood, and I, I understand that Bezos has passion projects that you know, space travel and other things that I think he'd like to invest more of his time in. But I think he also recognizes now that, that, that Amazon truly has to move into a new phase of its own evolution and that he has to pass the baton to someone who's prepared to, to embark on that journey. But the way I see it is um, I believe that this next evolution of Amazon is going to take them from being this kind of pseudo retailer data technology company to becoming what I term in the book an apex predator. They are literally going to move now to the highest level of their own evolution. And like all apex predators, the biggest problem becomes food. You know, we need more food. We need, and in Amazon's case, we need more verticals and categories that are lucrative, that are vulnerable, and that we can go in and, and take a massive chunk of. And so uh, some of those categories that I talk about in the book are things like banking, uh, finance, insurance, education, healthcare, which is a massive one. 
and uh, shipping and transportation. So these categories, I believe, are the ones now that Amazon is going to be bearing down on very, very heavily. And in fact, if we just look at healthcare alone, in the last three years, Amazon has launched nine major initiatives aimed at the healthcare market. The last one being in, uh, I think it was October or November of 2020 when they launched a digital pharmacy. They now have pharmacy licenses in 50 US states. Uh, they are opening digital pharmacies, physical clinics. They have healthcare programs for their employees and Berkshire Hathaway employees, JP Morgan employees. I mean, they are, they are assailing the healthcare market. And so I think the end game for Amazon is, look, we don't want to just sell you running shoes and electronics and, you know, Amazon Prime movies. We want to be your healthcare provider. We want to be your child's education platform, tutoring platform. We want the insurance on your car, your home. We want your credit card, your bank account. And if you're Jeff Bezos, everybody in the world gets one bill each month, checks payable to Amazon. Thank you very much. I think that's the end game. And so that raises the stakes for every other brand in the market. And, and most of those can't compete. I mean, the, the amount of free cash flow that some of these big companies, you know, Google and Amazon and Apple and et cetera, that they, that they generate almost assures other companies not being able to compete. Um, I mean, Absolutely. Does, does, now does that dominance and, the, and that kind of worldview of things though, I mean, all of these big companies are already in the crosshairs of potential anti-monopoly behavior and getting too big and too important. Um, does that imply, I mean, at some point, does Amazon become a bunch of different other companies that are very you know, specialized in their particular areas? Or, or do you think Amazon gets through having one mothership that's Amazon with lots of other business lines underneath those? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think I think it's it's virtually inevitable at some point that we're going to see a breaking up of Amazon. But the point I, I make in the book is that I don't believe that that time is now. And the reason there are a couple of reasons for it. I think first of all, uh, consumer dependence on Amazon through the pandemic was implicit. You know, there were a lot of us depending on brands like Amazon to get the things that we needed to our front door in lieu of any other options. The second thing, though, is that Amazon is now one of the primary employers in the United States. I mean, they're, the Amazon is adding hundreds of thousands of jobs to the economy. So if you're a, 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 if you're a politician, a lawmaker at this point, is this, is this the time to take Amazon to the woodshed when right. they're actually contributing more jobs to the economy than, than any other retailer while other retailers are closing down? their stores and their operations. So again, this sort of leads us back to this idea that this isn't just an acceleration of things that would have happened anyway. I think that the pandemic created a very unique circumstance. It really created cover for Amazon now to embark on some of the things that we are seeing them do and be able to get away with it. Right. I mean, listen, I, 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 love, I love the company. I'm fiercely loyal, as most are. It's been a stock in my portfolio for a very long time. You know, since the since the the inception, the IPO, I think the stock's up four thousand um, percent. Is that all? Yeah, is that all? I think the S and P's <laughs> up. You know, a fraction of that, right? So it might even yeah. be more than four thousand. I'm I'm reading. It might even be forty thousand. I'm 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 reading it on a chart, so it's hard to see for sure. But we know it's been a big outperformer. So, so I guess that begs the question, if you, if you look at, at we, we know e-commerce in general 
kind of accelerated. We were at we were at X percent for for a while and growing, and that was really where the growth was as far as total retail. That uh, the, the, through the pandemic, retail sales is what is twenty percent plus of that number now. Yeah. I think we're touching about 20%. Yeah. So you're at 20%. We know there's still we know there's still much more to go. So you also talk about, you know, what what the what the shopping center of the future looks like because, you know, people are still social creatures. They like to get out and about. They like to go out and touch and feel things. So how do how does a retailer compete with the simplicity and the convenience of Amazon in the real world if we all still like to go out and do those things? Yeah. So uh, a few good points in that question, and I'll, I'll try and take them one at a time. So first of all, yeah, I mean, we've seen, obviously, we've seen a huge escalation in the West now in terms of e-commerce adoption uh, through the pandemic. And one of the big questions is, are we going to see that recede dramatically once everything kind of goes back to quote unquote normal? Although I would, I would dispute the term normal, but, but once we go back to life uh, kind of as we knew it. And, and I think that the answer is already out there. I think we can already look and see the answer and the answer is China. And you know, if you look at what happened to the Chinese market uh, during SARS, uh, really uh, in 2002, 2003-ish, uh, the Chinese e-commerce market was incredibly nascent. It was way, way behind the U.S. in terms of percentage of the total retail market that was being transacted online. But because of SARS, and SARS, let's not forget, had, if I'm not mistaken, a 15% mortality rate. So, you know, not, not less than 1%. It was actually 15 full percent in terms of mortality. So, I mean, lockdown was serious, serious business. And Chinese retailers stepped up and particularly grocery retailers stepped up and really uh, in a very, very short period of time, uh, ramped up their capabilities dramatically. Consumers flew to online and, and they, they skipped a lot of the infrastructure too. I mean, they skipped the, the desktop, the, the, the tablet, and they went right to mobile and mobile became sort of the linchpin in the whole thing. Well, um, it, it stuck. The, the Chinese economy did not lose e-commerce once uh, things returned to normal. And in fact, it is just a, about a month ago that the Chinese economy now is 52% e-commerce, the, the, wow. the retail economy, 52% e-commerce. So my belief is that, uh, and I think I say this in the book, that by as early as 2033, I'm expecting that we are going to cross that same threshold where about 50%, 51% of our routine consumption, uh, mostly starting in the grocery category, is going to come to us uh, via online. And the things that we shop for are going to be incredibly discretionary uh, when, when that time comes, the things that we actually go physically shop for. Right. And, and I mean, that, you know, if you think about it, the, the e-com allows us to do things when we want, how we want, and it's, it's just become so easy to just go to one place, put a bunch of things in a basket that already has your credit card and your address, click one click and have it delivered maybe that day, maybe the next day. So if you're going to go out of your house, you really have to give people an experience, right? I mean, you know, the, 
there's a reason that the Lululemon store, so aesthetics of the store matter, the, the, you know, what you get in the store matters from an experience and a customer service perspective, you know, so, so I, I guess technology needs to be enhanced in all these, at all these, you know, physical retailers, the customer yeah. service probably needs to be enhanced. So, so what is that, you know, who's winning in that, in that area? Are there any brands that come to mind that you think, you know, these guys, m- maybe they even got it before COVID, I'm not sure, but, but you know, who seems to be yeah. getting physical retail right? Yeah, so, um, and, and, and there are some. Um, the, the first thing I'll answer, I'll go back to your question about shopping centers, because I think that's a good one. And then I'll, I'll, I'll address the, the issue of which brands I think are, are outperforming. Um, so from a shopping center standpoint, the interesting thing about shopping centers today is that um, if, if you sort of look again, if you sort of pan out and look at this historically, and, and I, you know, I'll, I'll show my age here. Um, but when I was growing up <laughs> back in the, in the olden days, when I was a teenager, the shopping center in our community was essentially the analog version of Facebook. It was where you met up you know, with your friends on a Friday night and hung out. It was Uber Eats because there was a food court with, wait for it, a dozen different food options. My goodness, you know, which back in the day was something else. Uh, there were movie theaters, so it was Netflix. Uh, there were, uh, you know, Ticketmaster, ticket outlets for concerts. So it was kind of like the, the analog version of Ticketmaster. And of course, it was Amazon. If you didn't know what you wanted, but you knew you needed, you know, a new, a new pair of pants or a shirt or whatever, you went to the mall. That's where you started because there were the most options. Well, in really uh, a, an incredibly short period of time, that has changed. And everything that I need now, all of the social and commercial functions that the shopping center used to provide are now held in the palm of my hand, right? Um, my smartphone is the mall. It's the biggest mall in the world. So all of the social and commercial functions that the mall used to provide are now defunct. So shopping center owners who are simply trying to digital, digitalize their existing models I mean, this is like, it's, it's like trying to, trying to put a new engine in a penny farthing bicycle. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. You're talking about a, pre, a pre-digital model or an industrialized model for retail that is now trying to find its way and be relevant in a digital landscape. So shopping centers really have to reinvent themselves. And it's no longer just a matter of going out on the market and trying to you know, appeal to a Lululemon or an Apple store, you know, bring those guys in and everything will be great. We'll have tons of traffic. Um, they, need, they, they now, the shopping center itself needs to become the anchor. They need to become the production that people are coming to see. And so I think there are really four pillars of the shopping center of the future. I think, first of all, Consumers want, if they're going to get off the sofa and put down their their tablet or their laptop and not shop on Amazon and go somewhere, I think they want an authentic sense of place. You know, that they want to, they want to uh, arrive at something that feels like it is a true destination, a true place. And I mean, you know, there are examples of this in California that, you know, the Grove is a good example. You know, there's a very distinct vibe, right? When you when you're hanging out at the Grove and it's nice. 
In London, you could argue that Coal Drops Yard, a uh, new development, uh, kind of a stunning architectural development in the heart of King's Cross in, in London, is another great example, very distinct sense of place. This idea of these monolithic concrete cathedrals of consumerism that we built out in the dusty suburbs somewhere and just paved over with asphalt, that model's dead. Uh, brands don't wanna be there and consumers don't wanna be there. So place is the first thing. Um, population is the second thing that I believe that, you know, and this is, is not gonna really come as a huge insight, I don't think, but I think mixed use is the future. I think that um, if you look at any of the most enduring public places on earth, uh, the piazzas of Europe, you know, the, the market bazaars of Asia, uh, they are infused with human energy. It's that mixed use energy of people working, playing, communing, you know, entertaining all in one spot. It just, uh, it, it gives that sense of human energy that I think we thrive on. The third element is productions that the shopping center needs to get in the business of entertainment and they need to create that entertainment and become less a leasing structure and commercial real estate structure and more a, a production house, you know, that really gets good at producing amazing entertainment for their guests. And then the last piece is a platform that these centers need to be digitally infused. Consumers should be able to go to the center and shop and have everything shipped home for them. They should be able to go to the center and shop and have half the order be done online and take whatever they want with them. You know, we need that sort of digital flexibility in, uh, in these centers and we're gonna see a lot less retail. We'll see a lot more food, a lot more entertainment and a lot more community in these places and not simply again this you know kind of commercial lineup of the same hundred tenants that you find at every other shopping center right so that's number one now you're, to your question about brands i would say if i had to pick one brand right now that has just set themselves up beautifully for the future i'd say it's nike and they started doing it around 2017. nike uh first of all uh said to about 30,000 of their retailers in the world, uh, thanks for coming out, it's been fun, but we're gonna invest in 40 retailers going forward that we think can actually deliver the Nike experience. So to the rest of you, again, you know, it's been a slice, but we're moving on. They started investing in building out their own stores, uh, the ha Nike House of Innovation, Nike local stores, you know, really building these experiential palaces. Uh, to draw consumers into their ecosystem. They put a concerted effort into direct-to-consumer sales with a target of 35%, which they've already achieved. Now they're on the way to 50% direct-to-consumer. And um, they really, really got fast about innovation. They really stepped up their innovation and doubled the speed of innovation. So by the time, that was 2017. So by the time the pandemic hit, Nike had already sort of immunized themselves, you know, and they were, they were prepared to do business in a pandemic when a lot of their competitors were not. Yeah, well, uh, selfishly, again, it's our top holding. So I love Nike and, you know, I've even been building up, I don't know if you work with or have studied Adidas, but clearly Adidas has been a laggard and I think they got the memo uh, that, and are kind of trying to execute on, on Nike's playbook a little bit, which is probably why, you know, I think there's some interesting catch up to, to and it's probably 25% cheaper than, 
than Nike is on, on all the metrics. So, I, I mean, I love that story. I mean, fr fr from a from a you know kind of general merchandise perspective, from my perspective, I'd love to hear yours. I mean, Target for years, Target seemed to be lost, and and I'm not really sure what what allowed them to catch up and and kind of get the memo, but they really did in a big way in the last three years. They decided to spend oodles of money on you know upgrading their digital capabilities, and the the pandemic allowed them to do you know, order online, pick up at the curb and, and all that kind of stuff. Now they're doing stores within stores. I mean, I think Target really gets it. My daughter, who's 11, literally came to me and said, dad, if you don't have Target as a top holding in your fund, you're gonna be, I'm just not gonna talk to you. She's just so brand loyal at 11. Yeah, no, um, I, I think you're right. I think, yeah, tar I mean, Target had a really tough time around the pandemic, or I'm um, sorry, around the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Target was killing it uh, before the financial crisis. It was Target, and, you know, and, and they had become sort of this designer boutique, um, a big box player, really creative um, product alliances, brand adjacencies. They were they were really doing well. When they when the financial crisis hit, they really they to your point, they really lost their way. They. Um, they really, I think, lost sight of the basics. You know, they started doing the basics terribly. Uh, just even things like inventory management, um, you know, basic merchandising, basic customer service. They let all of that stuff slip. They also got preoccupied with Canada. They they launched a major offensive in Canada. They were they bought out a chain of stores here and they made an attempt to launch. If I if I recall correctly, it was something like 250 stores within weeks of each other. Like boom, you know, to to bring up all these stores, and it was uh, just a a colossal colossal failure, a train wreck. And and so they wound up retreating from Canada. I don't think that did much for morale at the time. But I will say this, when, uh, when Brian Cornell came on board uh, from Pepsi, I believe, I, I didn't think it was going to, I didn't think he was going to be successful. I really didn't. I felt, yeah, here's a, here's a, you know, kind of a, a, a packaged goods guy coming into a general merchant. And I just felt that it wasn't a good fit. Well, you know, I was wrong. Uh, I think he came in, I think he really addressed those basics of retailing got, you know, got them back to doing the, the simple stuff really well. And also at the same time was, was incredibly open to what was happening in the marketplace in terms of di digitalization, in terms of technology. And yeah, they, he's breathed life back into that brand. Uh, whether or not that continues, we'll see, but, but it's been a great turnaround. Yeah. In the book, you talk about, you know, brands being the new church and state. What, you know, can, you, can you describe that? Because I, I thought it was really intriguing. I hadn't heard it talk, talked about that way. I think that'll be really interesting. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that if you look at societal attitudes today toward the traditional institutions that we have looked to in our lives to give us guidance, to, to give us a moral compass, uh, to look out for our best interests as a society, um, that being government and organized religion, you find that faith and uh, conviction in both of those has declined precipitously 
since about the 1960s. So in 1965, a year after I was born, uh, seven, uh, almost 70% of Americans, for example, believed fundamentally that the government had their best interests at heart, that they could trust the government to do what was right for society. Today, that is 17%, which is shocking, right? And um, so we have lost, fundamentally, we have lost faith in government as a society. And this is not exclusive to the United States. We see the same patterns happening in Canada and in, in Western Europe and other places in the world. Secondly, as it pertains to religion, we're seeing the same sort of decline in organized uh, traditional religion. So 75% of young Swedes, for example, claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. Um, and, that, and that too, uh, as you get down into uh, younger generations, we see the same pattern almost uh, it, you know, across the board globally. So there's a vacuum of trust in the market. There's a, there's a vacuum that needs to be filled by something. We have to believe in something as human beings, just in order to get out of bed in the morning, you have to believe that, you know, someone is, is providing moral guidance. And so I believe that that's brands. I believe that brands like Nike and others, Patagonia being another uh, good example, are filling that moral vacuum. And, uh, you know, they, they are, taking risks and positions on social and environmental issues that, that do indeed risk disenfranchising some, but I think uh, more, more thoroughly energizing others. And you know, Nike through the Colin Kaepernick uh, campaign, initially, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, you're closer to it than I am, but I think their stock took a hit initially when the Kaepernick campaign came out, because I think everyone thought, oh my God, what are they doing here? You know, But then their sales went up by 15% on the heels of it. You know, And their stock price, of course, has been doing fantastically well. So yeah, I think brands are indeed the new church and state. And you know what? So what? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm okay with that. You know, We need someone to stand up for what's right. Absolutely. And I mean, if you think about it, who better to, to, to be someone to look up to than companies that we interact with on a daily basis. You know, it, the, the, and, and yeah. from an investment perspective, the ESG movement is undeniable. You know, I, I, I think a lot of people would consider a lot of that, you know, kind of marketing hype in some ways, but doing mm -hmm. well by doing right and managing your business the right way for the right reasons I mean, the best brands have been doing that for many years, but long before it was, it was you know, a marketing cachet to, to talk about ESG. So, so I, yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I even wrote a blog post maybe a year ago that talked about why brand, a brand's portfolio was much more intriguing as an ESG option because mm -hmm. of the brand and the overlay of the ESG that's just been embedded in, in the best brand's DNA for a very long time long before it was interesting yeah. to talk about. Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, to, to that, that point, uh, two thirds of consumers today make decisions based on a brand's position on, on social and environmental issues. 
Um, so, so it's, it's not, you know, that these brands are just kind of, you know, adopting a, a woke position for the sake of it. They recognize that this is important to, con to consumers. Um, and, you know, I think there's also, you know, an acknowledgement that we have to make, and, and I talk a little bit about it at the end of the book, is that the retail industry has been incredibly destructive. You know, as an industry, uh, we have we have promoted overconsumption. We have um, arbitraged labor and resources from communities around the world, in, in many cases, impoverished communities. We have, as an industry in the West, we have taken advantage of those communities, robbed them of their resources, underpaid them for their labor, mistreated them in factories around the world. Uh, you know, and, and here we here we are today. You know, with uh, you know fires ravaging places like California and Australia, plastic islands in the oceans floating around, fires happening in factories in in India. Um, so we have a lot of ground to make up as an industry. We are culpable on a lot of fronts, and my hope is that the pandemic has, if nothing else shown us just how interconnected we are as a society and how the actions of one half of society dramatically impact the actions of the other half. Uh, amen, amen. So from a, from a we, we had to adapt really quickly to get through the pandemic, to serve our customers. Hopefully we're coming out the other side of that you know, what, what's your view of, you know, what, are there any particular categories or brands that you think will literally have been to, have benefited from this and keep on going? And, or are there any that, that, that probably rented customers probably weren't ready and will probably lose those customers again? You know, if there anything in there would be really interesting from your viewpoint, obviously, because you're, you're looking at this from a much higher level than I am. Sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think for one thing, I, I think it's fair to say that I don't think we really understand the health of the consumer right now. You know, uh, there have been so many different aspects of, uh, of, of support and stimulus and subsidies and, and pay, you know, backing up payrolls. And I, I think that once we get out of this pandemic thoroughly, uh, I think that we are going to, at that point, really have to evaluate the longer term health of the consumer. So I think to, it would be a mistake right now to make all kinds of assumptions around this sort of, you know, oh, we're just gonna run right into the roaring 2020s and everyone's gonna go out and spend with abandon. I'm not so sure about that. And, and we're frankly, I think all, the, the other thing that's, that's happened is that companies have now had a long time on the ground uh, with, being able to run their businesses with fewer people. And so if, if I'm a, a major chain of stores and I've been doing okay at 80% of payroll, I'm not exactly gonna run back to 100%, you know, right away at least. So I, I think that there, we could see some longer term employment issues. And, and again, I think that we're, we're not exactly sure how fragile consumers really are. So there's, there's that. Um, I do think, you know, to, to your point, and it's a good point, renting space on someone else's platform, you know, the, for a lot of brands, the obvious uh, host 
has been Amazon or Alibaba or some of these major international marketplaces. Um, but you're quite right. When you're on Amazon, you own nothing. You know, and, and frankly, it's like you don't even own your own IP anymore. You know, if, if Amazon likes what you sell and it looks tasty to them, well, they will rip it off and they'll go into direct competition with you and they'll undercut you on price and they'll boost your own profit product to the top of their recommendations list. So there's that, you know, um, Alibaba in, in Asia is, is a, a more hospitable host, more of a partner. They do share data. They, they allow you to have your own customer data and that sort of thing and build your own brand identity. But that's, that's today. You know, what about tomorrow? At the end of the day, it's their platform. It's their, it's their rules. So I think that there will be uh, some reckoning there. I think a lot of brands have run to Amazon. There are a lot of people right now buying companies that sell on Amazon in, in aggregate, you know, going out and buying dozens and dozens of these companies uh, that, that simply sell on Amazon. So I, I think there could be a bit of a recoil there. The point I make in the book is that you have to build your own energy as a brand. I think if we take anything from the night lesson, it's that you have to take your own destiny back into your own hands. And Nike said, you know, to Amazon, see you later. We're out. You know, um, you're, you're not good for us. You're not healthy for us. And they built their own ecosystem. They built their own energy. And they've certainly uh, built an ecosystem that draws consumers into their brand. And so uh, I think every brand should take it, take a lesson from that. I mean, I, I guess it's the, the ultimate in brand strength and relevancy is if you can just thumb your nose to Amazon and say you're going to go your own way. <laughs> yeah, it Not is. And, do, and, right? and, and, yeah, and it is. It's hard to do because, you know, these things, companies like Amazon become like, they become like anything else in an organization, you know, promotions in, in companies, uh, you know, having sales, if you're a department store, getting off kind of the heroin of having too many sales, it's really difficult because, you know, who, who's going to sign on the dotted line to say, yeah, I'm willing to let the next fiscal quarter tank in an effort to get off of this sort of promotional bent that we are on as a brand. I think the same thing is true of Amazon. I think, you know, there are a lot of brands out there that know that they're on the razor's edge with Amazon, uh, that at any moment, Amazon could turn on them and, and go into competition with them. And that it's not, you know, you're commodifying your own brand by being on Amazon in the first place. Let's face it. There's absolutely no brand equity afforded you on, on Amazon. But if you're the CEO of a company that's doing $100 million through Amazon, you're going to write that, write that off, you know, in an effort to build your own energy, it's really hard. But at the end of the day, I think any brand that is going to survive this intensified competition when we come out of this pandemic, and especially in the second evolution of Amazon, they have to be an answer to a consumer question. And not just an answer, they have to be the definitive answer. So if, if I'm looking for a brand that aligns with my values on the environment, Patagonia, Right. I mean, it just it's like a beacon in the marketplace for anyone that's invested in the environment. If I want a brand that anticipates my needs and uses technology in a really amazing way to delight me and surprise me, Stitch Fix is, a, is an obvious 
candidate for that. Um, if I want the best product, the best vacuum cleaner, hair dryer, uh, fan for my home, Dyson, you know, because they're an engineering brand. That's what they do. So in the book, I present kind of an archetypal model for brands to identify which question are they the answer to? And moreover, are they the answer to a question or are they just out there peddling product like so many other brands? And, and that section is the reason that I went, I, I told you I bought the audiobook because I like to listen and all of those charts and graphs and comments, I, and it, it's what made me buy the book too. So I can have all, have all of that stuff in there. Um, wow. One thing I wanted to, to close up with because I think it's really important. You, you talked about, you know, companies, if, if, if a company has been doing pretty well and they've been doing it with 80% of capacity and or cost, I've written about this before, you get a little hooked on better financial metrics, better operating margins. So you try to do more with less for as long as you can until you have to add to the SG&A basket, et cetera. You know, I, I, I recently went to a, a, a Marriott in, in the desert and you know the hotel industry has struggled mightily, obviously, through through the last for the last fourteen months. And I spent about an hour and a half with the GM at the hotel just to kind of get a feel for what the hotel industry looks like. I, I gave him some candid, maybe wasn't even that positive in, in from, from my perspective as a as a guest, what my experience was. And we talked about that. He said, "You have to understand the industry." I'm, I can't hire people fast enough. And many of our, many of the people that we want to hire are getting paid more by sitting in, from sitting at home on unemployment. And so short term, mm -hmm. the brand and the experience get tarnished, which is a dangerous game to play. Yes, they might be more profitable for the next couple of quarters because they have a rip and they have demand coming back in mass because it's almost summertime, but they their cost structure is lower. But the brand experience the most important thing that keeps you going to that place could be in trouble if they don't get yeah. it right. And so, I, I mean, from for, as, a, as a guy who's in strategy, I don't know if you're focused on that industry, but the disruption that Airbnb and VRBO has, has kind of, you know, they shed a light on the, the inefficiencies with a, a dumb box in a hotel with maybe good service, maybe not good service, maybe good food, maybe not. I loved your, the, w when you talked in the book, you talked about the experience is just a sum of the physical, emotional, cognitive stimulus that we get wherever we go. And, and, we, and as we add up all of those little nuggets, they turn into your experience. And that's so important. Yeah. And I never have seen it presented there before. So I, if you want to end kind of on that, on that topic, I think that's yeah. super important. Yeah, sure. So I think we I think we have sort of mystified this notion of experience. We talk about it a lot in in business in business in all aspects of business. Now we talk about experience, whether it's B two B or B two C. It's all about the experience. What I've never really seen though is a clear definition of what that means. You know what what is an experience exactly? And and the the only thing I can come up with is that really it's an amalgamation of content. It's physical content, digital content, emotional content, cognitive content, but it's content. And that, that doesn't matter whether you're in an airplane taking a, a flight somewhere, whether you're in a, a Michelin star restaurant, whether you're in a hotel or, or a retail shop, you are being presented with an amalgamation of content. That's everything from the person who greets you 
to the design of the space, to the media that is, that is around you in the space, all of it is content. The difference I think between remarkable experiences and mediocre experiences or bad experiences is the degree to which that content is thoroughly thought through, is designed with intent, uh, designed with care and creativity and presented in a flawless way. That is really what makes for a remarkable experience. And again, it doesn't matter whether it's a, an airline, a restaurant, a hotel, or a retailer. It's about developing, producing content, and delivering it with absolutely flawless execution. But the truth is, if we're being honest, most businesses don't do that. Most businesses have a rough idea of some of the, the, you know, the general aspects of the experience that they would like the consumer to feel, but there's no design. There's, it's not intentional. They throw the doors open in the morning and what happens, happens. And you know, some, some might be delighted with their experience. Other people will be horribly you know, disappointed, but there is no design. And so uh, you know, look at a Ritz-Carlton. It's my opinion that nothing happens by accident in a Ritz-Carlton. Everything is predetermined, staged, rehearsed, and executed perfectly. I mean, it's it's so it's so uh, you it's so good that when something does happen that isn't optimal, it is completely jarring, you know, in that environment. So, I think that's what it comes down to. Everybody today is if you have a customer and they have an experience, you're in the experience business. And experiences are content, so everybody's in the content business, and they better get good at it in a the, hurry. I mean, the problem I see is most of them aren't good at it at all. Would you agree? I mean, it seems like that's, again, from your perspective, that's probably, you know, you could probably spend all your time just getting people up to speed on what that means and how to do it, because I don't see any examples that are obvious with people that are good at that. It's what we spend a lot of time doing, frankly. Yeah, um, you're, you're absolutely right. Many are, are not good at it. And part of the reason is I think that many people out there in the industry are looking at their experience, as, especially as it pertains to physical stores, they're looking at it as being kind of the, the final step in the consumer journey, that the store is really just a distribution vehicle for product. If they've done all their advertising right, the consumer will come into the store, pick up the product, and that's that, done. The brands that get it realize that the store, and frankly, even their websites, are the beginning of the journey in many cases, that the store is actually an, a mechanism for customer acquisition, that the distribution of product can happen anywhere. You know, Your product can come from anywhere, but the store experience is potentially the, the most powerful media channel that you actually have. And so great brands and, you know, come back again, we'll close off with Nike. Um, they get it. They get that their stores are actually media and that every form of media that they have out there is the store that consumers can buy from what, you know, anytime they like. Well, I certainly hope uh, I get a Nike store down here. They, they have one up in LA and Santa Monica, but they don't have one down in San Diego that I know of. So Listen, Doug, this, I, could, I could spend hours talking to you about retail and about what you see in the landscape and which brands you think are the most intriguing and, and that get it. Uh, everybody, one, you have to buy the book. 
the, it is just an amazing read for so many different reasons. It's entertaining, it's insightful, it's provocative. I think it's really honest. So, you know, that, that's obviously the most important. Get out there and, and, and read the book because you're gonna get a lot of great information, resurrecting retail. And uh, for people that want to, to learn more, should they go to Retail Profit or what, what's the best way to do that for you? Retailprofit.com is the mothership. Yeah, okay. it, everything, anything that they like is there. We have lots of videos, articles, uh, links to great content. So yeah, by all means, retailprofit.com. That's profit with a PH. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and uh, by the way, chapter eight, when you get the book, is the most fascinating chapter, I thought. I just literally, I read chapter eight like three different times. So thank you for all your work. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the chat. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. Yeah. You too, my friend. Take care. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the dynamic brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the dynamic brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.